0: Is that what I'm saying? Rough Trade Radio. Trade Radio. Yeah. Rough
1: Trade Radio. Trade rough Radio. Trade Radio. Rough Trade Radio. <inaudible> rough <Ruff mumbles> Trade Radio? Rough Trade Radio. Rough Trade Radio. Rough Trade Radio. Rough Trade Radio. What's that? And welcome to this very special episode on Rough Trade Radio. I'm here with Lizzie Goodman, who has just created a very special book called Meet Me in the Bathroom Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City, 2001 to
2: 2011. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. How are you today? I'm great. Happy to be at Rough Trade. I love it here. Fantastic. Yeah, Yeah, surrounded by all these
1: records of people that you probably know.
2: Well, yes, or have met at least. And it's so fun. I mean, I'm just a nerd for record stores in general, and this is the ultimate. So it's always fun to come here. Always. Was, Was there a record store that you kind of grew up going to? I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, it's kind of a big suburban w- wasteland in terms of the actual urban environment. Um, but yeah, there was. Um, it's, it was called Natural Sound. Um, there's also Bow Wow Records all on Central Avenue in downtown Albuquerque, which was like the the sort of the one nod to urban life, like the one strip <laughs> of kind of there's a coffee shop and there's a couple of record stores and there's like a weird store that sells Doc Martens, like that, <laughs> that spot. Um, and I used to go there and look through all the used stuff and like just kind of marvel and listen to things, spend hours in there. Fantastic. I like that everyone I speak to has always got their own record store that they kind of hark back
1: to. It's Mm -hmm. a very nice thing. Coming Um, of age and all that. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So you've just made this um, incredible book, which is I've read is 622 pages. Is that correct? Give or take.
2: Yeah. But it's a fast (laughs) read, I swear. Like, it's so funny because I got in so much trouble at various points in the production with with, uh, publishers. They're just like, for God's sake, can you please cut this down a little bit? And you know, and it's kind of like now, I mean, everyone's everyone was very happy with it in the end and supportive, but it was quite long. It was a thousand pages at one point, and I was I definitely had to kind of cut and cut and cut. And eventually I was just like, Nope, I put my foot down and I'm feeling very <laughs> gratified because people are reading it in a couple of days. So I swear it looks daunting, but do not be intimidated. It's really dirty. So it carries itself. The story carries itself. Good for you
1: for putting your foot down. <laughs> Cutting you. things down is terrible. I do it for the I make the Rough Trade magazine, I have to cut things down and oh, yeah. I hate it. I- i can 't I can't get rid of stuff, and it 's a constant battle, so yes, I know your pain oh um, good okay, so I suppose I mean you spent the last six years interviewing people, transcribing, putting this book together about this period of time from two thousand and one to two thousand and eleven a long period of time, yes. quite a recent period of time. Can yes. you kind of tell us in your own words what what this book is
2: yeah, I mean, I think it's true that it's very recent. What what I i the book begins where it ends. The book began for me where it ends in the actual text, which is in 2011, the spring of 2011, seeing the Strokes play at Madison Square Garden, and also seeing LCD Sound System play what was then their final show yes. at, at, at Madison Square Garden, and just feeling this sense of like completeness of a period of time that kind of synced up with my own youth my own rise as a journalist my friends like it just made it was so clear to me that day that everybody i knew had kind of in this moment reached a pause in their story it was mm-hmm. like a changing of the record if you will like something was over and something else was about to begin and I think what the aim of the book was and what I hope it does is to capture what it felt like to be there then. Um, I was aware very much that we had lived through and been fortunate enough to participate in something that doesn't always happen, which is your friends and peers and kind of immediate cohort becoming Uh, sculptors of an entire aesthetic for your generation and it was really magical and I wanted to be able to drop people into what it felt like to be there whether they had lived it themselves and were now kind of reliving it or whether you never had a chance to kind of go see the Strokes at Mercury Lounge in 2001 or something like that. Here's here's your way in like a portal to that time.
1: That's great. I mean it's so reassuring to think that there has been this period of time in recent history that has been as iconic as you know people talking about you know touring with like you know the stars of the 70s and that kind of thing i i was obviously a teenager um during that time too and it's just nice to know that actually that time period was so important to culture fashion music everything it was this bubble and it sprung from that time in new york
2: yeah it was i mean i was saying the other day, just remembering being in Albuquerque, New Mexico in like 2003 and walking into Target, which is like, I don't think you guys have them here, but it's sort of like a kind of um, a kind of one stop shop store. Like you might have you can buy clothes there, but you can also buy like cereal there or something. It's where your mom takes you to kind of get <laughs> like cheap shoes for some wedding that you have to go to that you're only gonna wear once. Right. Yeah. And totally. we used to go there all the time. And I was there and it was like, oh, in the clothing department, they have. Fake rock T-shirts and pleather motorcycle jackets for sale at Target, and it was just aware an awareness of how far the kind of tentacles of the cultural reach of New York City and the Lower East Side in 2003 had gone. That yeah. that fashion on the level of target in Albuquerque, New Mexico <laughs> was being influenced by what, you know, Julian was wearing or, or what like Carano would be wearing. And, and I think that that really shocked me because you, I was a child. I mean, I was like 22 years old or something. It was sort of like, no, nah, come on. <laughs> like that can't be, is that really why that's happening? It just felt so, so surreal, but it was true. I mean, it they, what happened in New York city during this period of time influenced, Uh, the aesthetic of I mean, we're still living out, we're still bearing out in the culture, the influence of those artists. Um, Mm. And, you know, it all started right there in these like dirty clubs where no one thought anyone would care. It is amazing, isn't it? What were you um, in about 2001? What did your life look like? So in 2001, I was in college in Philadelphia um, studying English and classics and pretending that I was going to go to law school. I was a very good student and a very like good kid for the most part. And so I kind of had this Jekyll and Hyde life where I was out of, you know, a big university working really hard, like doing my homework, <laughs> like getting getting things done. And then I would also go up to the cities, New York City, Philly and New York are pretty close. And I would take the train up there all the time and kind of wild out, you know, like uh, hike my skirt up a little too short and smear a bunch of black eyeliner on and just go out with all these kids that I had met um, through bands. And I I'd, I'd started coming to New York City when I was 19 and I met some of the guys in the Strokes and they introduced me to other people. So I just those were sort of my New York friends and I would stay at my grandparents' apartment and uh, kind of live this double life. Um, amazing. It was amazing. It was pretty wild. And, but I was still pretending that I was going to, like I kept trying to take the LSAT, which is the pre-law school exam. And so it was like stroke shows, LSAT prep. Stroke <laughs> shows, LSAT prep. Um,
1: How did you manage that? I mean, I can imagine the strokes, the parties you must have been going to were pretty Yeah, Yeah, when they would
2: come to play in Philadelphia, we would get a little crazy. I, I think, I mean, honestly, to I, this is sort of relevant to the, arc of the story it got wilder later those years Mm. at least for me I mean those guys I have no idea I now know from having asked them that they were doing lots of wild things quite earlier than I was but I wasn't the debauchery you need money to party you know on the level that that is that the strokes reached in terms of Mayhem, which they all talk about in the book, on the level that Ryan Adams reached, on the level that, you know, the Interpol guys reached, all these people who did end up doing quite a bit of substance abusing, and we all did. I mean, it was part of the culture there. Yeah. Um, you need, you need some cash to be able to pull that off. So in those early years, like when I was 20, 21 years old and those guys were around the same age, there wasn't it was more like, you know, you'd be hungover or something. But it wasn't it was more innocent, actually, yeah. than it became later when there was sort of power and money and influence and fancy tours and buses. And like, you know, we all still needed A lot of those those a lot of the stroke guys, at least, were living with their families still. I mean, they were all New York City boys. So i recall you know they i don't remember exactly but they get moving out into your own apartment was still like not something everyone had done if you had your if you your mom let you sleep at your house that you grew up in and you were in new york and you're trying to start a band and make ends meet like you stayed at your house because like that's sweet you get extra money for guitar strings and stuff
1: Probably a bit like now, actually, people just can't afford to yeah. do anything. Yeah. Ever.
2: <laughs> Money was an issue. It wasn't there's a reputation that the strokes have for having been rich kids. But I can attest to the fact that they were, you know, they they'd, they'd let you buy them a drink if they could. And no nice. one had any cash. It really wasn't like that.
1: So you started to become you were
2: friends with the Strokes,
1: sort of as they were as they were forming the Strokes, and then I suppose from there it just branched out to you meeting people through them and things like that. So you got to know a lot of bands over those years, and you, you kind of saw this firsthand. And at, at that time, were you kind of writing about music
2: during that? I period? I wanted to. I mean, I it was it's it's retrospectively kind of inadvertent I mean I always wrote and I was always interested in writing but I didn't I wasn't a music nerd I mean I was I was I went to the record store that I told you about but I was also interested in literature I was interested mm-hmm. in fashion I was kind of a culture vulture person and less a kind of super gearheady like vinyl combing like I wasn't that guy or yeah. that girl I was kind of more general interest but meeting the Strokes Kids and then all the other bands that I met through them, them, bands like Long Wave and The Realistics, these sort of early early groups that came out of New York City that were friends, Moldy Peaches, that were friends with the Strokes kids, those bands were my favorite bands and then I also through a kind of completely different route a friend of mine was dating this guy Gideon Yago who was an MTV um, news personality and a big rock fan and I met him and he introduced me to a bunch of journalists so Ah. I met, I kind of had two ways into the world, it was like the rock boys and then the kind of journalist kids and it slowly dawned on me that I remember meeting my friend Jenny Elliskew, who's a great character in the book, who now is a big radio DJ in, in America and a great writer. And I was just like, wait, you work at Rolling Stone? Like, that's a thing you're allowed to do? How do you even do that? And so it's sort of, it was almost like by osmosis, by being outlaid in these bars, meeting these people, it occurred to me that my interest in, um, you know, Victorian novels, which is what I was studying in school, was not that different from my interest in, uh, the you know learning about the history of American punk rock or something that, that the kind of the studiousness the sense of seeing this art as a lens through which you understand broader culture which is what I was doing in college was exactly what journalism music journalism was and so that was kind of the light going off like oh I get this I see how this is done this is not some foreign thing this is something I really I feel like I could figure this out and be good at it and it only took 10 years or so <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's like kind of if, if you're part of it then you are going to analyze it and it's going to come naturally to you yeah what was um? I want to know what, what was New York like in those kind of like early 2000s because uh, I at the time was living in a in a small village in Wiltshire and I, I, I dreamt I read about this life in the enemy and I just d- used to lie my bed dreaming about it so please can you just tell me (laughs) what it was like where did you hang
2: out where did you go what did you go dancing did you go and see bands bands not so much well no okay yeah we went dancing I mean but it's so I will answer that but I will just say first that this is like that makes me so happy because I swear to god this book is for you like it is it's because well but like I mean I wrote it for you like I wanted (laughs) it was total luck that those of us who were there got to be there, including Mm. the bands. Like it was just the way the universe oriented itself. And it's like, I felt that way too. The introduction of the book is all about lying in my bed in Corrales, New Mexico, which is the small town outside of Albuquerque that I'm really from looking up at my own ceiling in, I mean, it's New Mexico. It's in the middle of nowhere with the skyline for New York city on my ceiling. Like I pasted it there because I was just so in love with the idea of New York and everybody in this book even the bands felt that way like that's why you come there you go there because you're trying to fulfill a sense of promise about who you could be and it's a little bigger and a little brighter and a little sexier and a little more adventurous than the person you can be if you stay in your town and we all went and this is what happened and so now you know this is a sort of invitation to come along um the book is meant as an invitation to come along to satisfy the itch of like someone who is exactly in your position because I was there too, yeah. like we're the same um it was awesome it was <laughs> we went, so we would go dancing like those those period I said it before, but that period was really innocent it was i mean yes, there was a lot of drinking, and like everyone was smoking and people were smoking weed and stuff, but I didn't see dirty, dirty drugs until until people got record deals. Right, um, yeah. Before that, it was like, you know, I remember... I remember once going to see the Strokes at Asbury Park New Jersey where famous the the town Bruce Springsteen made famous basically Mm -hmm. Um, and like a friend of mine from college that I used to go to all these shows with my my girl Nikki we took we like got ourselves to Asbury Park from Philadelphia and met the guys there and met the band there and it was like oh my god we're on a list like that's so cool and we went in and it was like they played this incredible show I mean just sweaty and gross and like everyone is disgusting and then they gave us a ride back into the city on the tour bus and I remember being in the back of the bus as this like just hanging out I mean like watching stupid movies on they were watching like mall rats a lot when they made (laughs) uh is this it if I recall but just watching dump those guys were so goofy they were such boys they were like just goofballs like silly genuinely silly they have this reputation for being so cool and they are and were but it was also like goofy I remember being in the back of the bus um when we were heading into the tunnel from New Jersey into the city and the sun was coming up and it was just like, oh, my God. And I remember as you went through the guard, like the tunnel uh, guard sort of house or whatever, I remember one of them yelling, hide the drugs, you know, <laughs> it was kind of a joke. Like like I was saying, I didn't see any. It's, it was yeah. not as if there were like 500 lines of blow out on the it was not like that at all. Everyone was just up late watching the sunrise being kids. Getting to live this kind of dream, you know, and and you did feel I felt an approximation to that by association with a lot of these bands. The other day you say dancing, I think about also going to and this is really prominent in the book, going to um, shout which was this party um, before like, Miss Shapes, which became quite famous. There were a bunch of little parties, not little, like really major parties that everyone in New York City went to. And chat was on Sunday night, um, and it was at this club called Bar 13, and which was like not a cool place. It was like just south of Union Square, kind of shitty, just like, I don't know, grimy and not in the best way, kind of <laughs> tacky, actually. Yeah. And it just, for whatever reason, they had these promoters. It had a rooftop. They... Everyone went to Shout on Saturday night and they played they played garage rock. They played like I mean what a band like the Mooney Suzuki or the White Stripes was really pulling from That's They played the easy beats. They played like Rockabilly. They played like early Rolling Stones. They played just this great sort of, you know, hair slicked back, you know, uh girls girls in girls in wiggle dresses boys in leather jackets oh, rock fun. and roll so fun and this famously in the book now i mean is where karen o oh invented her personality so she talks about having gone to show i mean we all went um and you just she talks about having like 16 cosmopolitans and just doing knee slides across the dance floor and just sort of like like losing herself and i think that was the theme of those those nights was just you came here because you wanted to figure out how to be someone that you couldn't be in your hometown and here's the stage where you can invent whoever that is and it's just going to be every Sunday night until you find them Uh I love that I love that it was on Sunday night as well yeah it's like that should give you a sense of how important people were prior how how significant people were prioritizing like regular square life
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just love that all these young people getting together sounds like it's an old woman young people getting together um, just kind of all coming together in the city and just like you know from all over the US or, or the world and just knowing they have to be in this one place and they have to just go out dancing and get drunk and meet people and that will form who they're going to be and these people end up being these icons and it's just so inspiring and nice to know that that yeah. can happen and it yeah. still happens every day now in London and other cities around the world. It's just
2: fantastic. Well, the, the opening line of the book is from Connor McNicholas, former NME editor and lovely human, who basically, the line is, I may be slightly paraphrasing, but we're all living through your own golden age, so start living it now. Like, that's the message of the book. Yeah. This was not any, nobody knew that Karen O was going to play, you know, was going to be walking down a Grammy red carpet. That seemed insane. Yeah. Um, I, nobody knew the Strokes would be playing Saturday Night Live. Like, a year and a half after that story i told you i mean that would have been you would have just laughed it would have just seemed (laughs) like absurd and so i think the lesson from that is not just that it's possible for anyone although you know because maybe it is maybe it isn't but the lesson from that is that the magic is there for everyone like your own private story and your own private world and that sense of youth and possibility is um universal
1: I want to ask you quite a boring question, but I really want to know the answer. Back then in sort of early 2000s and you talk about, you know, getting a ride down to a show and then you know, meeting up with the guys from the band.
2: Did you have phones then? It's such a good question. This is such a good question. No, it's not boring. Technology is a huge sub theme of this entire story. There's a lot of sub themes, themes, uh, file sharing, um, war. Post 9-11 Iraq war insecurity, economic change, uh, political change in terms of the mayoral leadership of New York City and how the cleaning of the city, uh, the sort of like cleaning up of the city pushed everything to Brooklyn and why that worked and why that created this whole sort of real estate economy built on the back of these cool bands, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these themes And Napster, I already mentioned maybe. But uh, I mean, for sure. Social media and the rise of Facebook, the rise of Twitter. I mean, these are all things that were invented during the period of time when, yes, that we're talking it, it about. It straddles it because two thousand one, yes. two
1: thousand eleven. It's completely two thousand one. There was nothing. Two thousand eleven. There's
2: everything. It's a complete kind of. It's, it's it's extraordinary to think about. And I know I keep talking about Karen O. I'm I do love her deeply. So that's also <laughs> part of why. But I'm a, I'm I'm a, I'm the ultimate fan. But it's fine. She talks about sort of how important it was to be able to be ugly. Like you didn't think there's no Instagram, there's no Facebook, there was no social media of any kind. Like there was no way, there weren't even cell phone cameras. So until much later, people had to. My friend Sarah Lewitan, who's awesome in the book Ultra Ultra Girl, aka Ultra Girl, my first roommate, lunatic <laughs> and and uh, heartbreaker that she is, um, was empowered in her job at spin in part because she was able to kind of bring this little digital camera around and just snap photos of people. I mean, that was like an entry point. If you had images of a gig, you could get the NME to maybe publish them because they were so desperate for any content. So the cell phone question, I had a cell phone in college at the very end, but it was, I mean, I think I don't know this for sure, but my memory is if we took it to New Jersey, it would stop working. You know, it was like it worked in Philadelphia or only I mean it was not I i would guess I can't even remember this does make us sound old although it really wasn't very long ago but I would what my memory of like oh I can know this for sure I remember going to a Hammerstein Ballroom show that's in the book for the Strokes when they played right after 9-11 they played a Halloween show at Hammerstein Ballroom in the city a huge show and all these celebrities were starting to show up it was like oh whoa what is happening Um, but I remember going there and not and like there was a problem with the list and like I'd come from Philly and I wasn't on the list and I was like you know sort of not, I mean I figured we figured it out but basically it wasn't like I had any recourse in a moment like that like there was no one to call it wasn't like yeah. I can pull out my phone and be like oh the tour manager or Nick said to call this person if I had a problem at the door it wasn't like that it was like yeah you can't get in because we're in we're in a pre-digital age and that would have been I mean, obviously the very end of 2001. So no, no phones. And then maybe a year later, we probably all had like kind of flip phones, but it was still a couple of years from the supercomputer, anything like a camera even. So, I mean, I think Karen, when she taught, I find this really important. You didn't think you, you, you had the freedom of feeling like the only witnesses to any particular night were the other people you were there with. And that created a sense of just lawlessness and intimacy at the same time, Mm. which I think is really crucial for developing the kind of um, self-confidence and Sort of internal compass that allows you to make some of the records that we heard from these people.
1: Yeah, and the lack of distraction, I suppose, as well. You can just concentrate on being in your own tiny bubble and creating music, and not really being affected by stuff that other stuff that's going on, apart from the records that you've grown up with or you know, or that what your friends are making. But that would just, yeah, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah, anyway, it was fun. Um, <laughs> So I, I was going to ask you about the 9-11 thing. So I was reading some interviews with you that you've done on, on Pitchfork and Observer and other things like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have been asking about it and I don't want to go too far into it. But um, I didn't really ever think that 9-11 would have had such a big impact on that side of things until I read what you said about it. And I wanted you to kind of talk a bit about that and what who you've been speaking to for the book and what they've said about it. And mm-hmm. was it something that you were bringing up and asking them about? or Was it something that everyone has
2: mentioned? It was probably a little bit of both. I mean, I definitely had a kind of a couple of things that I hit in my interviews with almost everybody just because the structure of oral history requires that you... I mean, assembling an oral history is a real pain. Mm. I recommend no one try it. It's <laughs> It kind of ruined my life for a long time, although I'm very happy with it now, so I don't know. You know <laughs> knock yourself out. If you feel like torturing yourself, like do it. But it is really hard because just the painstakingness of it, of the assembly, is really tricky. It gets fun later once it's starting to flow, but that meant for example that I knew I needed to write about 9-11 but I didn't know how exactly I would do that Mm -hmm. so to cover my bases there were things I asked everybody about their first memory of New York City the idea of New York and what it meant to them I asked everybody like probably what are some other things like about the first song that they whatever band they were in or whatever relationship they had with this world the first song that sort of like clicked on for them whether they wrote it or they heard it where they heard it etc cetera, etc cetera. and I also asked everybody about their memory of 9-11 but often I wouldn't have to because it would come up I think I mean there's a whole chapter about it in the book um and I think the the most important takeaway really in terms of the the relevance. It's not a salacious thing to it's not like, oh, this is this major thing that happened in New York that we're going to just take a break from the story to include here. It's yeah. important because it it's important because the city in which these bands were forming was attacked. And there the psychology around that, that what it felt like to be in New York changed what it felt like to be an American changed dramatically from, you know, September 10th to September 12th. I mean, it was it's it was a diametrical shift between those two dates. And the way that it affected the bands is there's a couple of different things. But I think the biggest one for me is something Day from TV on the radio says in the book where he talks about how it basically. The gentrification that was already starting with the kind of post Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani did a lot of cleaning up of New York and did a lot of kind of clamping down on what the cabaret laws. It's all in the book. But basically that there was sort of there was a kind of attack on nightlife and it was started by Giuliani and it was continued by Mayor Bloomberg's administration. but. And there it's all, there's money coming in, investment, you know, that's what that's all about, cleaning up the Lower East Side so that fancy hotels can be built mm. and bankers can live there and, you know, which rich Saudi billionaires or something can come buy apartments for their kids there or whatever. I mean, ah, London yes. is the same, you know. <laughs> um, and what Day says is basically that, like, that was already happening and that nine eleven paused it. And I think that's really true. I had never thought about it that way. But, you know, post 9-11, it was like this rhythm of wherever New York City had been going had to stop because no one knew what this meant. Did this mean? I mean, people were really saying tourism in New York is going to be dead. No one's ever going to come here again. I mean, it's <laughs> hilarious yeah. considering what we are dealing with now with this kind of complete commodification of Brooklyn, um, which was like not even on anyone's radar at that point. Not to mention the Lower East Side. Um, But I think it put a pot. It was sort of like, whoa, what's even happening here? And for a couple of years, these brief this brief period of time as America reoriented itself, as as kind of the dust, literal dust in New York City settled. I mean, for a couple months, people were walking to rock shows with gas masks, with those little fold up masks in the kind of dentist masks in their pockets, because the ash was Bowery Ballroom, Mercury Lounge, these clubs I'm talking about, Luna Lounge, these places that people went to see shows, You, they're far enough downtown that it was in your air. Wow. Um, so there was this sense of like, wow, this happened and we were all doing this life before where we were making this music and kind of driving towards something. But now, like, let's extra do it because we could die. Yeah. Um, and that allowed simultaneously as the pause was happening in terms of the development of the city in the wake of of 911 there was a kind of pedal to the metal attitude from the bands and artists in who were living there. It was so the combination of those things. It's like everyone just kind of there was this brief pocket of time where everyone just got to behave like lunatics in this city that was ultimately already on the way to being kind of cleaned up. And we just kind of got this secret special pocket of a few years to behave that way um, that ended up changing culture. Um, That's so, amazing. Yeah. little pocket of time.
1: Yeah. And it did change culture. Yeah, it really did. It must be so interesting for you now to look back on that and just, I don't know, just kind of see music now and just know how much all that stuff that you went through and you saw and all the people that you know have affected all this stuff. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I want what I want to do now is to kind of play some music from yeah, that time. Sure. So I mean, I could actually keep talking to you like forever. I've got <laughs> so many more questions, but I'm just going to have to recommend that everyone just just reads the book yeah read I it I absolutely cannot wait to read it just, I, yeah I just want to know everything and yeah I'm very excited so what I've asked you to do is pick out some records from the shop floor um that right. kind of are relevant to the book sure and that time okay. I can see a few of them poking out over uh, here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pass them to you okay great um, we'll probably do four sure
2: Okay. Um, so good luck picking out of that lot. I know. Oh, my gosh. You guys tease me with this big pile I get to assemble, <laughs> and then there's only four to talk about. No, that's okay. It's good. I love, I love doing this. Um, okay, so the first one that's on top is appropriate enough. It's the Strokes Is This It? This is the famous uh, Colin Lane ass photo. That's what I like to call it. Colin <laughs> has done this is not you guys got the the amazing cover the American cover is nowhere near as good sorry guys it's just not
1: what's the American cover then
2: it's like a close up of a um, some sort of space phenomenon I can't remember exactly what yeah. it is it's kind of it's, it's cool I mean it's sort of abstract looking and it's blue with like orange uh, kind of you know, like lines, but it's, it's, I mean, it's something astrological. Oh. Um, um, is that the right word? Or Maybe. is that? yeah? Astrology is it. not the same as <laughs> astronomy. Astronomical, Astronomical is what I'm looking for. Woo. This I've been talking about. Is But so this cover is incredible it? and so dirty and awesome. And Colin did a lot of the photos for the book. He's an amazing photographer and this is his. And I mean, this is the record. Yeah. Like this is the record. You, we were saying, we were laughing earlier because I was looking for it here on vinyl here in the shop. And I couldn't find it and I'm it's like out. it's just you you know you can, I guess it's just you can't keep that thing in stock and that's quite a while later and that's still the case I mean the end of the book James Murphy who's who's done quite well for himself um Says, look, I told everyone who wanted to hate on the Strokes in two thousand one that is this it would be the album we would all be playing when we were having barbecues in our like thirties and forties. Oh, and God. like, you know, I don't know if this band would take that as a compliment, but they should. I mean, what he meant was, if I if I may, James, um, I think what he meant was this is the classic album of our generation of yeah. this era, and it's it's it still sounds. This is also cliche, but it still sounds so good and. It's so it's so came out of nowhere, just perfect in every way, not a missed note. And I play it still and I just I'm right there. You know, it's it's I'm right back to that moment. So oh, this yeah. one yeah. We have to have that one. Um, um can you pick a track off it please and introduce sure. it? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, one trout oh god, the pressure. Oh, the pressure. Um, I would say I'm gonna pick the modern age. Um I love that song. It's It's also really significant in the band's story because they it is kind of the track where when they wrote it and they played it to each other in their studio, it was like, oh, that's us. We found us. Um, So that's my pick.
1: That was "The Modern Age" by The Strokes from their fantastic, fantastic album "Is This It," which was released two thousand and one. One. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! I know. I mean, I just can't wait to go and listen to this as well because I haven't listened to it for a long time. But it's never going to get old. No, it's never just gets the best. Old. Never gets old.
2: Right. What have you got next? So perhaps somewhat surprisingly, I have I have selected Amy Winehouse "Back to Black." Nice. Um, Because one of the cool things that I, about reporting the story and telling it as oral history, so it's all, you know, you can kind of get at so many more interlocking narratives than you can in a narrative in a straightforward reported form is Mark Ronson is in the book and he is great in it. He's such a sort of, you know, erudite character when asked to speak about music in general, but He talks about having kind of, he was obsessed with The Strokes and like really into all their stuff and living down in the East Village at that time and kind of um, had, I mean, it was very funny. He talks about going on tour with Jimmy Fallon, weirdly. He was in Jimmy Fallon's band and Jimmy Fallon opened for The Strokes. Do you guys know who that is here? Jimmy Fallon, he's a presenter, He's a big presenter and he runs, he has like, you know, the biggest late night TV show and he used to be on Saturday Night Live and he's this kind of cute, he was at the time kind of the cute hipster boy comic on Saturday Night Live (laughs) and he had a kind of comedy album that Mark produced and then went on tour with him to support and they played with the Strokes. <laughs> and so they all kind of knew each other. There were these sort of, that's what I mean, there were these sort of, the SNL guys were around a lot at bars with the Strokes guys. There was this interplay of New York City kind of comics and musicians and fashion oh, people and whatever. Stop it, it's killing me. So Mark <laughs> said that when he was producing the this Amy Winehouse record and they did some of, some of it in New York, he was talking about basically how he was listening to this music to the to the strokes and bands like them and that that did have and you can you can read the book to hear the full story and I won't I won't uh I won't mess up Mark's commentary on it but basically that that was an influence and that Amy commented on sort of like oh are you gonna make me sound like the libertines like is that what's happening here it was feeding into <laughs> his thinking sonically about this album which of course then we all got and were like oh my god this is the most incredible thing ever made so I just love that the interplay between these different scenes that you wouldn't necessarily understand could have any effect on each other. But you have to remember that like, it's all happening at the same time. And if you're a fan of music, even if you're not in that strokes world, you're making other stuff that becomes cool later. Like you're listening to that record. Yeah. Uh, so I'll pick a track. Oh, also hard. Um, okay. um, I mean, I got I got to go with the title track. I got to go back to black by Amy Winehouse. I mean, there's just talk about classic like this. This woman, this voice, this artist, she was gifted to us and taken way too soon. And being in London during this period of time, I've been actually thinking about her a lot and playing this record a lot. So respect to you, Amy. Rest in peace.
1: The incredible Amy Winehouse. I love what you just said about like you know, even though there was this life in New York that you know teenage me was like craving after, there was it was also happening in in London. And I read once that the Libertines. You know, when they joined together, they were like, "Right, let's just be like the Strokes," <laughs> and yeah. then they became something else entirely, but inspired by someone else. And then maybe the Strokes were like, well, "Maybe we should be a bit more like the Libertines," and then they kind of all feed off each other. And it's just so great to know that it was happening in both places and other places around the world as well.
2: That interplay, something is cooking, like, yes, it's and great. It is, yeah. They, uh, I saw Carl actually today, and. Uh, from the Libertines at another event and he I was reminding him that he I mean he's hysterical in the book but I was rem- reminding him that he he remembers but that he had told me he, they like hopped a train to get to the first stroke show he and Pete hopped a train to get to the first stroke show they ever saw I want to say it was in Manchester sorry if that's not right Carl but um and they pretended to be the moldy peaches <laughs> who were opening for the strokes in order to try to get in. Like that's how they got on the train. Cause they didn't have money for a ticket or something. They were like, no, we're late for our gig, you know? And he did an impression of an American accent that was very funny. Um, <laughs> so they were, they were on the case, you know, pretty early on. But yeah, I mean that cultural exchange between our two countries is, 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 is what has resulted in the most incredible pop music of the modern era. I mean, it's really such a gift and, I thought those guys were so cool. Um, I did. I loved all, I mean, France Ferdinand, Libertines, Block Party, all of these bands were huge huge for the book huge to get in the book uh there's all this stuff in the book too about basically that dfa records and lcd sound system would not exist without all these british expats who kind of came over to new york and met james david holmes phil mossman all these people tim goldsworthy being the major one if so it's all we're all we're all exchanging all the time and that's that's what Oh, I know it's makes me quite emotional. I know, short, no actually. tears, no tears. <laughs> um, right, what have you got next? Okay, oh, it's so hard. I know. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. Okay, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Interpol, turn on the bright lights. Uh, also, I, you know, it's tough with these because it's like, well, no, duh, like you have to include mm. that, right? There's so. It's like, is this it? And turn on the bright lights are the two, you know, arguably the two most important records. Fever to tell. Inter- Interpol, turn on the bright lights. The Strokes Is a sit and Fever To Tell if I had to that's like the holy triumvirate yeah. of the beginning of this world um, this record my 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 friend Sarah who I mentioned earlier who was my roommate um, on the Lower East Side she was there was this sort of hilarious non-rivalry rivalry between The Strokes and, and Interpol in terms of their fans and I was a Strokes kid because I knew those guys and she was an Interpol kid because she was in love with it I mean just that the true meaning of the word crush like just crushed by them she was just obsessed and she took me to see them for the first time at Mercury Lounge I remember it really well the kind of the moodiness that their sound was just it's interesting because we're talking about all these bands we're talking about this sort of reinvention of rock cool and all that stuff and certainly the Strokes personified that and some of the other bands that they were more associated with but really what we're talking about is an Mm esthetic Interpol's not like a classic leather jacket rock band at None. all. Um, they sound, they sound like something else. Um, and yet what we really mean, I think when you think about what they, all these bands had in common was just, again, that sense of freedom and possibility, make whatever you want, stick with it, find mm. a sense of what they had in common was a sense of, of rebellion of yeah. kind of like, and of sexuality, I think really like rock was so, big and brawny and like bad macho and tuneless and sexless and these guys were all like hot. Yeah. <laughs> they were all I mean it sounds like a kind of a uh, uh, a facile thing to say, no, but they're
1: kind of beautiful. They were all very yeah. beautiful men. All the ones I remember having crushes on, and they had this—the way they would express themselves through lyrics was very emotional. Very, it's kind of—they sang with like a desperation,
2: like yes. a real kind of like urgency. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And that's what was so sexy yes. about it. There was an urgency. So I would. So that's what Interpol has in common with the Strokes. That has in common with Yeah Yeahs. It has in common with you know even my favorite band from that era was the Realistics, which they never really got out there. But it was a sense of like i have to do this or i'm gonna die yeah and daniel kessler says that about the formation of interpol he says to me in the book like i knew i had to form a band or i was gonna live lead an unhappy life and then they made this insane record that is so beautiful and poignant and they're touring it in full this summer and i'm very excited about that um so okay I'm going to have to pick track one, side one of Interpol's Turn on the Bright Lights, Untitled, which my friend Rob Sheffield says, you know, that's some pomposity right there. Your first album, first song out the gate, you call it Untitled, like (laughs) love these guys. Uh, So thanks for that quip, Rob.
1: That was Untitled by Interpol. Spectacular. I'm going to give you one more. You're going to give me one more? Oh,
2: thank God. (laughs) Okay, good. Okay.
1: One more to sum up.
2: One more to sum up.
1: One record to rule them all, to sum up this incredible (laughs) book that you've written.
2: I mean, do you think you have another book in you? Oh, People keep asking me that and I just want to cry. I yeah, like the amount of transcribing yeah, you've probably done and, in the last few years. Well, and my army of interns, um, yes. including the inimitable Maggie Rogers, who is now a rock star here and in the States. It's really funny. She was my intern on the book. And now I just hung out with her at Glastonbury before her like major show. So Amazing. that's pretty rad. She's <laughs> transcribed. She said she herself has transcribed over 200 hours of tape for this book. And that's she was one of, I don't know eight interns I used. Oh, my God. So it's a lot. So I don't think I'm going to do an oral history anytime soon okay. again, but I probably will write something else pretty quickly. Um, I have a couple of ideas kind of milling around, but nothing concrete yet. And certainly, I mean, this book can't get done. Yet. There is no doing anything like this again. I mean, you could do no. another scene, but it's personal for me. Um, yeah, and
1: I suppose that the things that people you've interviewed have said, are, you know, that's probably changed your opinion on a lot of things, and it's probably given you... I don't know, a new way of seeing a lot of other stuff and it branches out into new ideas. I mean, you must have just heard so much information from all these people. Yes. It's a lot to take in. I'm you a little must overwhelmed, be just, yeah. your brain's probably just like, wow, wow, wow. That's the Pop sound culture. it's making. How did you know? I can hear. That is it.
2: It's going, whoa. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe take a break and take then a you can break. start doing something else yeah. another time. I have, I've, we're working on a movie. I mean, people want to, the next thing is like documentary or maybe a narrative film based on the book and stuff like that so yes, that's that so that's the next series of meetings before i figure out what i want to write next so and also i i want to sleep for a little while but that doesn't seem to be happening anytime uh, soon I you guess. can sleep for a bit me- yeah <laughs> a little sleep, <laughs> sleep. <laughs> a little sleep um, well so the one the one ring to rule them all record for me is actually i think i think we've i've saved it for last uh, inadvertently but it's yaya's master ep um this is just. I mean, it's. I, I, it says here that it's just called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess it's not. We called it the master EP because on it, Karen, you just see, the bottom of her face, her lips, and her neck, and like she's clearly maybe not got a shirt on, but you can't see. You know, it's not. It's not not safe for work. But she just. She's. She's. She's exposed, and yeah. she's just wearing this like rad gold sort of like nod to the Missy Elliott world, who she was obsessed with. Master necklace, and it was just. I mean, as a I'm sure you can relate as a 20 something woman in America uh, in the in having grown up in the 90s where all my heroes, for the most part, I mean, respect Courtney Love and Bjork, but like were guys with long hair and kind of dude rock to see this person be beautiful and sexual and and brazen as i'll get out was just unbelievably uh freeing inspiring unhinging um for me and this i played this ep i mean they were by far my favorite band and i played this ep to death um the last song our time is probably my favorite uh because it sums up how it felt to be there then this was our time oh my
1: goodness I'm just so excited to read this book and I'm going to listen to these songs and just think about it and just imagine being in your shoes, in your in your daps probably at that time. Yeah, right. Um, thank you for coming. And before we play the track, I just want to say to anyone listening, please just get this book by Lizzie Goodman, Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City. 2001 2011 thank you so much for coming in it's a pleasure thank you for having me and well done for writing such an <laughs> enormous book that we all need in our lives so. uh thank
2: you very much i really appreciate that actually thanks fantastic you can introduce the last track now okay so this is our time by yayas yeah, 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 uh it's 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 the mantra for the age i would say Ah I-
0: sweet babe to break on through it's the year to be hated so glad that we made it cause all the kids in the street Whisper sounds that sweet The stars under their feet Well, it's the year to be hated
1: Bedouin by Bedouin. They leave me. Available in store and online at roughtrade.com. Have I swam too far?